You are listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO podcasts provide behind-the-scenes access to artists, curators, and artworks. Please visit us online at agio.net slash exhibitions. This exhibition is called Chagall and the Russian Avant-Garde. It was organized by the Centre Pompidou, which is the large, major uh, museum of modern art in Paris, and it's going to two centers. It has already been to Grenoble in southern France, and the AGO is the exclusive North American venue. It opens on the 18th of October, and it uh, runs until the middle of January. The exhibition really looks at one particular generation of young artists and what they do. And they were all active, well, beginning around 1910. The show really concludes in the early 1930s. And this was a generation who had to contend with revolution and war. And it's fascinating to see how they develop a language that's appropriate to this new reality, tough kind of reality, and what they decide to work with, what their content is. And each generation has to struggle, you know, in all time, in all places, with what they think is important to talk about in their art. So Chagall is clearly the most famous of this group of about 20 artists. He kind of bookends the exhibition, so he obviously introduces it and he concludes it. And in the middle is a series of sort of five chapters exploring how Chagall um, works with some of these other artists and in some cases how he works against them. Because they all begin again by wondering how to move forward, how to respond to the realities which are theirs. And this is a moment of incredible social upheaval in Russia. So how do you move forward and how do you speak eloquently to those issues that you think are important around you? They all tend to look, interestingly enough, backwards initially. They all realize, for the first time perhaps, how rich their own Russian traditions are. So out of one eye, they're looking at folklore uh, folkloric art. They're looking at icons which have been around for a thousand years. They're looking at almost uh, archaic art which has been around for two or three thousand years. They even look at Russian embroideries. They look at Russian architecture. You know, Russians are crazy about color, and I think you know you can imagine what. Well, everybody knows what Saint Basil's Cathedral looks like in Red Square in Moscow. It is just a mass of astounding pattern and color, and you couldn't think of a more typical kind of Russian building. And so they're looking to all these old sources, and they're being inspired because the art of Russian folklore was interested in a very instant, uh, dramatic, bold, and powerful way of communicating. And to that end... If you were a woodcarver, if you were a builder of a, a wooden Russian house, you looked for simple forms, you often looked for bold patterning, you looked for flattened kind of space. I think you can picture a kind of icon, right, very what we would call stylized, very sort of simplified into you know, kind of big, bold patterns. So out of one eye, 
these artists are looking backwards to all of those rich traditions of their own. Out of the other eye, they are looking to what's going on in Paris because France and Russia have had a very long, uh, very rich uh, kind of connection over many centuries. So these young artists in Moscow and St. Petersburg are looking at Parisian art that has happened to land in those cities, either through private collections, of which there were amazing examples, through special exhibitions, or they were lucky enough, as Chagall was and a few uh, like him, to actually travel to Paris and to come into contact with the hot new stuff. And surprisingly enough, the basic language of those new French, you know, revolutionaries like Matisse, let's say, and Cezanne and Picasso and so on, were surprisingly similar to what these young Russian artists had seen in their own heritage. That is, kind of flattened, distorted forms, uh, simplification of forms, uh, angular forms, vivid colors, and so on. All of that was somehow echoed in the new art that they saw in France. So they, they must have been thrilled beyond words to see this kind of wonderful coming together of the hot new stuff in Paris and the the very rich traditions that they had grown up surrounded by, really, and that they were kind of acknowledging for the first time as as being a jumping-off right spot for their own innovations. So it must have been a moment of enormous um, kind of excitement. And the show begins around 1910 with Chagall and a few of his contemporaries, looking to really kind of rural life primarily. Uh, well, Chagall, like a few contemporaries, was influenced by the French artist Paul Gauguin. He believed that the life of the city, like Paris, for example, was essentially corrupt, morally bankrupt. And he began his escape from it by going firstly to Brittany, which would be a relatively short train ride at the end of the 19th century. And there he found what he believed to be authentic life, that is, life untouched by industrialization and by the madness and the pollution and the chaos and so on of a big European city. Because the Breton peasants had never really been touched by industrialization. They were living in an isolated kind of world. And to some degree, a world that had been relatively untouched for a few thousand years. So that was sort of chapter number one in Gauguin's life. Chapter number two, which I think is well known to many people, is that he felt that even Brittany was, was too French and too civilized. And where did he go but halfway around the world in search of authentic life? What lies at the ultimate core of human existence? What are those fundamental kind of values that make us human? He didn't find it in Paris, and he didn't find it in rural France. He thought he would find it in the Pacific, you know, Tahiti. And that model of kind of escaping the metropolis and looking for authentic kind of true values influenced Chagall a lot. And it meant that he himself turned away from the big cities in Russia back to the little village where it all began for him. Chagall, lucky guy. He lived to be 97. Amazing, long, artistic, creative life. And he became world famous and very rich. His beginnings were very humble, 1887. A little town, not a village, but a town, I think of about uh, 60,000 people in western Russia, in what is now known as Belarus, so a separate entity now outside of Russia. 
And it was a community which was half Jewish. And of course, Chagall was born a Jew. And it was a rich, in a sense, cultural environment to grow up in. But certainly, according to the experts that I've talked to, it was a region of great poverty, especially for Jews. So Belarus and Vitebsk, this small town, were kind of at the heart of a region of Russia which has become known as the Pale of Settlement. And in the 18th century, uh, the Russian government decided to draw a line around Western Russia in order to contain the activities and movement of the Jews who lived there. And there were many millions of Jews living in this part of Russia. And they were not allowed to go beyond the borders of the Pale of Settlement, for example, without a passport. They couldn't go to St. Petersburg and Moscow on business. They couldn't uh, go to higher education you know, institutions in either of those cities and so on. So they were very, very contained within the borders of this particular piece of land, big piece of land called the Pale of Settlement. And the overarching reality for the Jews of the Pale of Settlement was poverty, extreme poverty. And Chagall comes from a kind of working-class family. Uh, his father was usually referred to as a kind of fishmonger. He was the eldest of nine children. And he grew up very much in the kind of sequestered world of a specific movement within Judaism known as Hasidism. And within that particular movement, a kind of sect which is called Shabbat, and he he grew up speaking as his mother tongue Yiddish, and he would go to a boys only Jewish school, and in that school he he clearly learned some Hebrew, but only some. You know, it was a, a form of education you'd learn by rote, and he would repeat all sorts of prayers and so so on. And in order to, I suppose, engage the kids, the boys, um, the local rabbi would tell stories, um, you know, myths and legends, chronicles and so on, that gave Chagall a strong sense, really, of, of who he was as a Jewish boy. Again, only speaking Yiddish with a little bit of, you know, almost biblical Hebrew on the side. Only as a young teenager, thanks to his mother actually bribing a local high school principal, did he move out of that world and into a Russian world. So can you imagine, in the Pale of Settlement, he would be like 12 or 13 and not speak a single word of Russian. So at that age, he left this rather tight-knit world and entered a more secular Christian Russian-speaking world, and he had to learn Russian, and apparently that was painful. He had a serious stutter, and he must have felt like a you know serious uh, outsider for, for some time. Anyway, only to say that it's the beginning of him struggling with his own identity, struggling with the many parts of that identity, because he did speak Yiddish, he did know some Hebrew. To what degree was he Russian? And then, of course, eventually he's forced into exile. If we jump ahead a moment, and he spends the last two-thirds of his life, which is about 60 years, in France. So he was really struggling with a sense of, of who he was. And uh, there is a kind of multicultural kind of tale there and what it means to be a migrant in a way, right? To move around and to be constantly confronted by new realities and how to absorb them, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I should say, how did he become an artist? Apparently as a kid, you know, grade five, um, he saw um, the bully in the school and the bully had done a drawing. And 
I suppose to some degree, I think Chagall admired that drawing, but he was annoyed by it as well. He was very angered by it, I suppose jealous. So he went home. Well, he went to the library actually first, and he got a book out, and he found a picture of a famous composer, and he drew it, and he hung it in his bedroom. And then some, you know, fellow student once came to his home and said, oh, you know, what a great drawing. You must be an artist. And he was like, wow, do you think I'm an artist? Maybe I should, you know, learn how to be an artist. And just to put that in context, you know, um, the Jewish faith does not support the depiction of human figures, right? So it was a leap. There were there were no people in his community talking about art and being an artist. It was a very, very foreign concept. But when this little you know, fellow students said, my God, I think you're an artist. Um, he began thinking and he persuaded his mother to take him to a local, you know, art school, interestingly enough, run by a Jew. And there Chagall presented himself with, uh, with a drawing. And the teacher said, you know, I think you've got some promise. And that was the beginning, really, of Chagall's determination to move out of this, you know, conservative environment, out of a, a specifically kind of Jewish environment and begin to see a broader world you know, a more secular world, uh, a world of Russian art, you know, which had its own, you know, centuries of, of figure painting and figure sculpting, et cetera, et cetera. So he went off to St. Petersburg. Uh, he went to some of the the great new, you know, innovative kind of schools. He came into contact with some of the most adventuresome Russian artists of his day who were very tied into what was going on internationally, specifically Paris. And very quickly, he realized that there were exciting things going on. He met, uh, or I shouldn't say he met, but he came into contact with Gauguin's paintings, for example. You know, so the world began to broaden very, very suddenly for him. And uh, that had a huge impact on what he decided to paint and uh, how he went about doing it. Why Gauguin was important is because it gave, I think, Chagall the confidence to return to his little town and to find the value, right, the artistic value in that town because there is Gauguin. He had gone far away to find authenticity. Chagall realized he could find it at home. And he returned and began to really kind of almost study the realities of Jewish life in this community and mostly poor people. And no one had ever really, of, of import, had ever looked at this kind of subject matter before. He had invented it. He saw something almost no one had ever seen before. Chagall was uh, at school in St. Petersburg. He was developing, I think, great sense of himself and uh, newfound confidence. And fortunately, he found... Oh, and I should say, he was not legally living in St. Petersburg because he was a Jew living in the Pale of Settlement. He did not have a passport which would allow him to study officially there. So he was living, you know, below the the legal line, and it must have been a fairly stressful time for him, but exciting nonetheless because he was coming into contact with some of the most advanced art anywhere and some great teachers. But clearly he was encouraged to go to the center of the world as far as he was concerned, which was Paris. And he had a, a mentor and supporter who financed his trip to Paris. And he lived there for three years, and he arrived in 1911, and it must have been one of the most thrilling uh, years in the artistic life of, of that great city or amazing things were going on, and Chagall instantly found himself amidst a crowd of light-minded, young, in many instances Russian, certainly Eastern European and Russian, in many cases even Jewish uh, artists. And they're all hanging out together in this strange and amazing building, which is uh, octagonal in shape. It had something like 140 studios. It still exists. 
It's called La Ruche, which in English means the beehive, and it clearly was an artistic kind of beehive. And there he, again, was hugely stimulated by what he saw around him, and he was seeing the latest in French art. He was seeing the bold colors and the flattened space and the distorted forms, a strong exaggeration, uh, um, a geometricization kind of of forms, and uh, his buddies around him were kind of absorbing too. So the language began to develop very clearly for him, the way he was going to express himself. At the same time, and we're going to find this uh, characteristic of the entire career of this man, uh, he was haunted by the place of his youth, right, Vitebsk, and he could never get it out of his mind, so he kind of married the the newness of the art-making around him, echoing, of course, ancient Russian art and historic Russian art, um, to a belief that the only thing he ever, ever wanted to express was his ponderings, I guess, about the place of his youth and the people there and the values of, of the Jewish community. So he brought all that together uh, in Paris. And the first section of the exhibition is really the beginnings of that process of, first of all, looking back along with some of his colleagues, understanding in a new way, I suppose, the the honesty, the integrity of the peasants of rural Russia and, uh, and they became an important subject for him. And then how to make it kind of international and modern and how to take the, in so, to some degree, I suppose, the narrowly focused values of his Jewish community and universalize them. Right? I should say at the same time, I mean, maybe we're going to talk at some point about children uh, and the appeal of this kind of work for children. But Chagall and his contemporaries were obsessed by children's art. And it was a huge kind of eye-opener for them. And, and it's interesting, there's subsequent generations, too, have, have looked to the spontaneity of children's art, to the uncontrollable just joy of color, and, and of the emotion. You know, this, again, kind of unbridled emotion that just comes so naturally to children. I think these adults, trained in a European style of figure painting and figure drawing, et cetera, et cetera, so careful and so so controlled, must have been blown away by the complete lack of inhibitions that the kids have, right? So just to throw that into the pot, another huge source. And so many of Chagall's works have a ch an intentional childlike kind of quality about them, and I think it is one reason why the show may well appeal to kids, you know? And what is it? Well, all sorts of strange and amazing things can happen in children's art. Things that don't normally belong together suddenly end up together. You know, and with Chagall, that's one of the characteristic features of his work. And he was, interestingly enough, the first artist to ever have the word surreal attached to him. And by surreal, surreal we mean kind of dreamlike, crazy things happen that shouldn't happen. Uh, things come together that shouldn't come together in time and space. And, and Right? It's a kind of wacky world. And there's no question that Chagall drew extensively on his own dreams, the fantasy of Jewish legend, and then in a way a comparable kind of folklore, fantasy, fairy tale kind of, of Russian culture. So can you see it's a kind of collision of so many things happening. And in a way, one of the most amazing things about Chagall for me is that he's able to take 
all these sources, both content-wise and style-wise, and synthesize them into something that's actually cohesive, coherent, unique, and expressive. How do you do that? Like, they're like a zillion sources that he has to, I think the word is synthesize, right? And out of it has to come one eloquent voice. And it must have been a struggle, but that's what he made that's what he made happen. So if you're looking for a typical Chagall, it's going to have that fantasy, partly Jewish in origin, partly Russian in origin. It's going to have the dream. It's going to have the intensity of color of children's art and, and all those you know new and exciting artists working in Paris. It's going to have yeah, the same colors that we see in Russian embroideries and Russian architecture, etc., etc. And it's going to have the distorted space, and it's going to have a playfulness and a kind of visual wit that is so much a part of his, you know, his personality. Well, the legends, interestingly enough, given sort of where the scholarship is around Chagall, are not explicit. It's more, you know, like there's an image of a cow floating over Vitebsk, right, the town. And I have to think, why is that cow floating over that town? And there are certainly inklings in what you know experts have written about Chagall that these could easily be based on aphorisms, like uh, apparently there's one in Yiddish that's something like, when you say somebody's floating over town like a cow, it means they're a fantasist. They're, like, they, they're, just, they're able to take their imagine, ad, imagination kind of anywhere. So... But but no one has been truly able to nail down, and maybe it's not literal. It's just not how his mind works. That this is the story that he is that he is depicting. It's a combination of so many different kind of ideals and tales, kind of all brought to brought together. And it's a kind of challenge actually to imagine where where he was going with it. You know, there are heads that float off into space, and apparently there's another aphorism in, in Yiddish that talks about, again, a fantasist, somebody, you know, whose head just floats off into the sky. Well, then, you know, Chagall almost takes that literally. He chops the head off, and it's floating all by itself up in a corner of the picture. Right? So it's not literal. You have to ask yourself, why are there so many floating things in Chagall? And, you know, it's fantasy, and it's dreams, and strange things do happen. But there is one consistent figure that appears in Chagall's work, and it happens to be a major focus of an important painting in the AGO's collection, which is called Over Vitebsk, which clearly means somebody is up over Vitebsk. And the word in Yiddish, I guess it's very commonly used, is, but it's not a terribly polite term, is Luftmensch, and Luft in, in German means air, and mensch is a man or a guy, a person, you know. So here's this floating guy, and he keeps appearing over and over and over again. And um, it is apparently a, a term of, of criticism, in a way, because it's not somebody, he's, he's not somebody you can tie down. Uh, you don't know where he comes from, you don't know how he lives, you don't know what he eats, you don't know how he makes a living. He's a kind of beggar, I suppose, and I guess for many he is considered a sort of allegory of, of the wandering Jew, right? These are a people with no homeland who are in perpetual exile, right? Perpetually wandering the earth, looking for a homeland, and in a way what better symbol of that wandering than this 
guy who has no homeland and he's above the land and he's just floating there and he's got a sack of stuff on his back and I can't imagine a more common motif. Again, if we think back to just the severe poverty of this pale of settlement, how many beggars must have been a part of these communities. And certainly one expert commented that about 40% of all Jews living in the pale of settlement were only supported by charity. So there were huge numbers of beggars. And as you know, war broke out and the Germans pushed the Russian border back, hundreds of thousands of Jews were forced from their homes. So Chagall must have seen firsthand, I mean, truly masses of people in exile, no homes. I discovered a new word, and I like it. It's Newman, N-U-M-E-N, and it's about the power of a place or a thing you have no control over the kind of magnetic energy that comes out of that place or thing. And numinist is, is a word that I would apply to Chagall in his relationship to Vitebsk. He could not leave it behind. And, you know, I'm not in exile in my city of Toronto or in Canada, but many are. And I can only imagine the, I wouldn't, wouldn't call it nostalgia, but that overarching, aching sense of exile and longing for some place which you cannot ever return to. I mean, maybe it's something we all experience ar- around our own childhood. I, I, I don't come from London. I do sometimes long for that place that I, that I come from. You know, there is a kind of universal feel, but it's particularly powerful and poignant in Chagall's case because he did have to leave home. Chagall was an enormous supporter of the of the revolution because he was from a working class family. He was from the Jewish people who were disenfranchised, right? And with the revolution came a moment of incredible freedom in which for the first time Jews were full Russian citizens. And that brought enormous excitement and enormous potential to his art making and to to his life, only to find out four or five years later that um, the circumstances would change so radically again that he could not live the fullness right of that revolution, and he had to go into exile. He had to turn his back on really everything that mattered to him, and it is tragic to leave it behind. I mean, it fed him forever. Right as 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 subject, it fostered, well, because it was this emotional, you know, kind of connection. He just couldn't cut it off. His wife helped him kind of live it every every hour of every day, and it inspired, of course, so much of his art. And then the Nazis arrived, and uh, they completely flattened the town. I think there were 118 people out of like 100,000 that emerged from the ruins. I think there were only a handful of buildings left standing. And in 1973, when Chagall made his only return trip, you know, again, through that 60-year period in exile, he couldn't go back. I mean, you just couldn't go back. He he had to ensure that the Vitebsk of his childhood lived in himself and in his imagination only. And I don't, you know, how could you survive a return to the realities of your community when it had completely and utterly disappeared? This show is about a generation of artists 
and they have a divergent path. And Chagall and a couple buddies do look back to peasant life, you know, to rural life, and specifically in Chagall's case, of course, to his Jewish culture. And they're enriched by it, and they want to explore it and express it. There is another crowd, and it's a big crowd of artists, who um, reject um, an art that, you know, for Chagall was critical, personal, individual, right, emotional, uh, psychological. It's about relationships. It's about love, family love, and so on, right? It's about daily rituals. It's about community and so on. There's this body of artists represented in the exhibition. There are about 20 of them who feel that Chagall is completely outmoded, outdated, even though Chagall is a revolutionary of his own kind, right? Chagall relied on the human figure to express what he needed to express, and to a very significant degree, this other body of artists, and we'll call them uh, the constructivists, rejected completely the notion of the, the human figure, although there are some exceptions. They're wondering out loud, as Chagall did, I think, you know, what should I be? What should art be? What's the purpose of it? And where Chagall uh, saw it as a, p a place to, to examine his personal life, these other artists realized that they could play a huge role in helping the radical kind of revolution, right, the Russian Revolution in 1917, unfold. So they attached themselves, became vehicles and instruments of a group of thinkers and political players who were asking some pretty basic questions. And they were around, I mean, we call it kind of socialism today, but it was really around equality. What does it mean to have a society based on social equality? And to that end, they did become instruments of the communist revolution. And they were used by this youth, youthful kind of state. And what I think is almost amusing in a way, I mean, I can picture them almost like OCAD students or something. One year, they're sitting on the distant periphery of culture and society. You know, they're poor young artists, starving. And then the next year, they're like the Ministry of Culture. They're sitting at the core of this new utopian vision. And I mean, I can't imagine a more exciting moment, right? What, what do you do with that? And, and it was thrilling beyond words. I mean, Chagall was a, just on the sidelines a little bit. Uh, he, he wanted to be engaged to some degree. But these 20 or so other artists just saw the world opening up before them. And they wanted to create and be a part of that world they'd never even imagined before. And so they were using new media like photography and film, sculpture, radically different than anything Chagall could ever have imagined. And these two movements diverged. And, I mean, maybe enemy is a strong word, but there were personal falling outs, certainly between these characters. And Chagall did clearly represent, they almost called him a bourgeois, right? Uh, because he was still painting pictures that had gold frames on them that a member of the middle class would buy and stick in their house. Whereas the constructivists, because uh, of the realities of the revolution, wanted a new kind of art completely. They wanted an art that was for the street, it was for the workers, it was for the factories. Um, it was to inspire and it was to be so politically and socially charged. And that's what they did. You know, they painted trains. 
There were trains called agitprop trains from agitation and propaganda. You know, they would com- it was all just totally amazing and brilliant and new. Completely paint a train from one end to the other and have it roam across Russia to inspire the new culture, right? The new world, which they were all envisaging. They they created parades and banners. They decorated buildings. I mean, nothing was too large and too ambitious. And Chagall, again, to a tiny degree, was kind of playing with those issues on the sidelines, but these 20 artists really ran with it. And they became very critical players in convincing the Russian people that this new world was, was a possibility and a reality. If Chagall is about emotion, then these constructivists are about the brain and the intellect and ideas. And if he's about the personal they're very much about the social and political world. And if he's about the home and the family, they're about the street and protest and new and innovation and change. I guess that would be the, the key word, radical um, change. And if Chagall is about color, they are about the absence of color. And if he, again, is about, I would say, soft and and sensuous kind of forms. They're about geometry. They're inspired by technology, by the machine, by by the city, by everything kind of new and inventive. And their work in many instances is simply black and white. It's very, in, case, in many cases, very geometric, like, like machines. They move into a realm that Chagall just absolutely could never imagine, and that is the realm of, of kind of pure abstraction. That means forms that have no reference whatsoever to things in the real world. And that's where these two kind of groups of people just make different paths. I think visitors will see in the one room devoted exclusively to works by these constructivists that it's a very foreign realm. It is so much um, inspired by industry, by the workers, and by a very powerful political agenda. Chagall was a lefty. He had every reason to be. He was thrilled when the revolution happened. He was in Vitebsk. He was doing some of the most important work uh, of his life. He had just married. Uh, he was incredibly happy. He was, you know, deeply in love. And it was the beginnings, really, of a whole series of what had become, I think, quite quite admired, much-loved images of lovers. And he, he was drawn to the revolution and what it allowed him to do. For example, he could suddenly found a school, an art school, for anybody. You know, anybody could go to it in Vitebsk with a sense that that anyone should come and teach, you know, the most radical new thinkers should should be a part of it. He invited some of these youthful sort of constructivists to come to, to um, Vitebsk and take some of the classes on. And much to Chagall's annoyance, disappointment, and I can't believe anything short of anger, they kind of took over the school and they kind of evicted him. So, you know, we know art-making is a battlefield. It's a very, very competitive world, and it's a place in which values are fought over, and, you know, some sometimes win and some sometimes lose. And it really meant that Chagall felt alienated, and he moved on. He moved out of Vitebsk, he went to Moscow, and he took on what he felt was, again, perhaps an appropriate revolutionary 
task, and that is appealing to a broader audience, perhaps, than, than a painter might normally, and that is by beginning to work in the theater, and specifically the Jewish theater, which was for the very first time not only just not prohibited, but actually supported uh, by the state. And that actually went on for a couple of years, and that again must have been a, a time of enormous uh, fulfillment and excitement for him. But after three or four years, it became very clear that the Russian Soviet government was going to impose increasingly restrictions on artistic activity of all kind, that uh, there was a rise in anti-Semitism, that life in the big cities was incredibly tough. Some of the basic human needs of fuel and food and so on were... I mean, we have to remember these these characters have lived through war and then they've lived through the revolution and they lived through the Russian Civil War and and so on. So times were very tough and Chagall had to clear out. And it must have been a moment of great sadness, right? Because he had committed to the revolution. He had waited his whole life to gain the freedoms which were on offer. But he had no choice but to leave. And then to live the 60 years, the next 60 years, kind of longing for the potential that he was part of for a few years. Chagall was just, you know, like anybody perhaps of many contradictions and complexities and so on. I mean, he, he can't help but have been a funny, witty, engaging character. Uh, very warm and, and very friendly, very focused, very hardworking. I can't believe he didn't paint, you know, to his last breath. But at the same time, I expect rather volatile. You might say childlike. Some might say childish. He clearly needed the support of a very strong woman uh, throughout his life. Fortunately for him, he met you know, a very beautiful, very intelligent, very gifted woman named Bella who inspired so many of his paintings really on well, well after her death, you know, relatively young in 1944, which left him absolutely bereft. And then fortunately, you know, a few more women came along to provide something of that, that role after she died. For me, if there's ever a highlight of this exhibition, it is a rather startling wedding portrait. And you know, in Western culture, maybe in many cultures, I thought I'm not quite sure about, certainly in European culture, there is a long tradition of memorializing an important moment like like marriage, a long history of wedding portraits of one sort or another. Chagall's absolutely stands out. It's a really odd and amazing thing. First of all, it's very large. It's like seven or eight feet tall, which by any standards is pretty big. But it's the posture of those two young people, obviously deeply in love, that is very strange and striking. And that is that Chagall is actually kind of hovering or climbing on the shoulders of his wife. And there's just nothing remotely like that. And why should there be? Like, what does that mean? So Bella, you know, is incredibly beautiful. She's in her very elegant white wedding dress, even though she has purple stockings. It looks like she's a little bit on the radical side. And he's rather, he, Chagall, is uh, uh, clamoring on top of her, very dressed up. He's raised his arm. Uh, He's got a glass of wine. He's saluting He's saluting all the excitement and joy that he must have experienced, first of all, to find a kind of soulmate and muse, and secondly, against the background, the backdrop of, of war and revolution, because amazing things were happening around him. 
that gave him reason to be hugely optimistic about the future. And then fairly quickly they had a child, which must have been a moment of great excitement and joy. All of that comes together in what must be one of the the happiest pictures ever painted. There is a strange little motif in that picture worth noting, and that is Chagall is smiling, and you can see his teeth. He's kind of baring his teeth. And I only say that because there's a very, very short history of people smiling in European art. It's not considered appropriate decorum, you know, because this is an image that's going to stand the test of time. It's for it's for history. It's forever, you know. Normally, you know, rich people who want to have their pictures painted want to be seen as rather dignified and, and serious, you know, important members of society. And there he is just glowing with this huge, huge grin. And then over top is a... Again, another little odd motif. It's a little angel, kind of a purple angel, which some experts believe is is, is an allusion to their to their young daughter, Ida. The last section of the show expands the time frame of the exhibition from 1930 to the late 1950s, because again, Chagall lived a very long time, 1985. And he was incredibly prolific and diverse in his interests and his and his uh, directions. Really, I mean, he became a stained glass artist, and then he painted the whole ceiling of the Chagall of the uh, sorry of the Paris Opera House. He was uncontrollable. You know, he had such creative juice; he couldn't it just the flow wouldn't stop. And much admired in his in his older years, uh, but that last room really focuses on two interests which were long-standing in his life not just his career, but his life. And one is the circus, and one is the theater. And the theater is specifically Yiddish or Jewish. And apparently there is a you know a long uh, but troubled history of the theater in Russia for Jews, uh, outlawed essentially. But then when the revolution came along, suddenly there was a great flowering. I mean, you'd have to say there was a renaissance of, of all sorts of Jewish artistic directions, and Chagall, again, thrilled to be a part of it, designing costumes and sets and really even contributing to some of the stage work, I think. So The Last Room looks at that exciting moment in Chagall's career. He's in the theater in Moscow, where I think some of the most innovative theatrical productions are, are taking place. And then he, at the same time, constantly returns to the circus, which has always been a huge part of Russian culture. It still is. And he comments, you know, he wrote a a little autobiography in 1922. And he talks about, you know, he's a kid and he's on the street and there are a couple street performers and he was fascinated at that early age. And my understanding now is that there were uh, actual Jewish circuses and Jewish acts, you know, in Yiddish, in in the... um, in the circus. And whereas the theater was, uh, to some fairly significant degree, discouraged by the Jewish faith, circus was open to anybody. And I think he, he was really obsessed with it. And he saw it wasn't just a happy, happy place. For him, it was a kind of allegory of human life and human civilization. And it had its, its joyous and hilarious and fun sides at the same time as visitors, I think, will see in the last section of the exhibition, it has its dark and tragic side. And he sees, you know, he's an absurdist. He sees life as absurd. He knows there are always these tragic and comic realities kind of coexisting.
The big questions, I think, really are what do artists want to talk about and what is the language that they're going to use to talk about? And in one generation, this exhibition really demonstrates just how diverse approaches and attitudes are to both those issues. What lessons can an exhibition like this teach us? For me, it is about um, the shadow that is cast over one's life by those early years, uh, for better or worse, and Chagall attempted to understand that through a lot of pain and a lot of struggle, and much of his work is is the result of that. And I think he he came out of that, I don't want to say narrow Jewish community, but a you know, very sequestered Jewish community in the belief that uh, what he could say would have universal meaning. Right? He felt that the lessons that he had learned as a child, as a young man, through this particular culture with, and religion within which he grew up could have applications to everybody. First of all, in the exhibition, I think there are lots of just content, there are ideas. Um, Chagall was obsessed, perhaps, by by family and by relationships and by love, really. And I think a lot of people will connect. Uh, the, he spoke through his emotions. It is a kind of universal language, you know, that's not going to impede any visitor from feeling comfortable. Perhaps the constructivists, who act as a kind of antidote, will make it all the more apparent, the kind of man that he is, and raise issues that are just as critical today. I mean, where where I think we maybe have a struggle connecting to the constructivists is that I don't think many of us, I certainly don't think every day of what a new world could look like. What you know, if we could wipe the slate completely clean in the city of Toronto or the province of Ontario, I mean, there are not many of us imagining that, right? What could a new society look like? If we, What would a utopian society look like in 2012, let's say? It's not where many of us are at. So it's fascinating to sort of picture a, a, a group of young people who are trying to change the world. And I suppose you could say that that revolution of 1917 in Russia was the most dramatic moment in, you know, in social and political uh, life in the 20th century, in the world, maybe, right? It set up a new model for what the world could be for all of us, whether or not it worked, I guess, is, is still under discussion. So I think if if I were an artist, um, I think I could use the show as a place to wonder what it is, what is important to talk about, what would a better society kind of look like, what would the role of me, an artist, and my creativity be in seeing that happen, what questions and issues um, might be critical. I mean, there is enough in the show for an architect because the constructivists were very interested in buildings something in the show for photographers because there's some of the most uh, progressive, radical kind of new ways of thinking about photography you will ever see. If you're a book designer, these constructivists were fascinated by what, by what type could do, you know, and how type and, and photographic images could be married and create provocative kind of new effects. 
there are some rather strange bits of sculpture that, you know, you're not sure. Are they buildings or are they constructions? Are they machines? There are kind of new categories of art being imagined and, and created. There's a lot in this show which just feels kid-friendly, you know. It's about animals and fantasy and strange things happening and people flying and bright colors. and So it has a, it has a pretty broad appeal. To complement the exhibition, the AGO has organized a host of programming, which I'm absolutely looking forward to attending, each and every one of them. There will be a concert uh, focusing on uh, music of Chagall's lifetime. There will be a dance music performance uh, focusing around Chagall, seen through the eyes of some key Toronto artists. There will be a lecture by a man who has, I think, written some of the most inspiring and profound uh, writings on Chagall, uh, who's coming out from the U.S., whose name is Benjamin Harshav. I wouldn't absolutely miss that one. And then for a lucky few, there will be a course uh, focusing on psychoanalysis and the work of the Russian avant-garde. So four major programs for adults offered by the AGO through the run of the exhibition. Through the run of the exhibition, the AGO will be offering visits for school groups to the exhibition, as well as specially designed uh, studio visits so children can make art inspired by the works of Chagall and his contemporaries. For families and children, the first offering is a family guide, which everyone can pick up at the entrance to the exhibition, which is for young people to use with their parents in the show itself. And on Saturdays, there will be a course offered for kids called Dream On, The World of Chagall, a 10-week-long course occurring on Saturday mornings. On the evening of Wednesday, October the 26th, from 5 to 7 p.m., the AGO will offer teachers an exclusive guided tour of Chagall and the Russian avant-garde led by education staff. We look forward to entertaining all those teachers October the 26th. Through the run of Chagall and the Russian avant-garde, the AGO will be offering an audio guide featuring 16 key works throughout the exhibition, uh, an actor kind of reliving uh, Chagall's, bringing to life really, Chagall's uh, own writings, um, and very informative interviews with both an AGO curator and a University of Toronto expert in Jewish-Russian life in the 19th century. At the same time, visitors will be able to join a public tour provided by AGO Gallery Guides, offered on a regular basis each day. For more information about any of the rich offerings of programs for Chagall and the Russian avant-garde, please contact the AGO through our website, ago.net. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on current and upcoming exhibitions, please visit us online at ago.net slash exhibitions.